Hey there. <clears throat> Ooh, that's kind of close. Uh, what's up, everyone? This is the promotional malpractice live chat. I don't even know what day it is today. Nearly tax day, isn't it? Uh, Wednesday, April 13th, 2016. Hello, my name is Luke Thomas. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. As you can tell, this is not my typical attire or uh, location. I'm in a hotel room in uh, New York City. My wife's here for work, so I came up to uh, stay with her if I could see her a little bit. And uh, since I have to be here for work tomorrow, anyway. Came up a little early. Uh, if you're a tech person, you know I'm holding this mic. Last time I did this was like, what, before Bellator 149 did a live check from my hotel room? And uh, all these tech people were like, you can't hold that microphone. That microphone's for having a stand. I know, but I don't have my stand. I don't have a mobile stand. All I have is a hand that I can use, and that's it. All right, you guys, pull up a little bit closer. You guys know how this works. Uh, 90 minutes of your cues and, uh, and, and uh, comments. I got started a little late because I had some tech issues I had to resolve, but um, hopefully those are all fixed right now. So thank you so much for joining me. Please give the video a thumbs up and share it and let everyone know about it. A couple housekeeping notes uh, very quickly. Um, one is that this morning, uh, you guys may have seen on bloodyelbow.com, our sister site here at SB Nation. Uh, I guess you can look closer than that. Uh, I was on the Heavy Hands podcast. And we talked about Habib Nurmagomedov. So if you want something maybe a little, little bit more in technical detail, um, go check that out. It's a Patrick Wyman and Connor Rebush promotions creation, and it's uh, up right now. You can get it on YouTube. You can get it on Bloody Elbow. I don't know why I keep fading back. There you go. Uh, okay, so I appreciate that and appreciate everyone uh, waiting and being patient. Let's get to the questions. First up, uh, seems to be the most important one, I guess. All right, any further thoughts on Joan Carvalho's death after a TKO loss in Dublin? Uh, it didn't feel like a late stoppage or anything, but knowing how crass anti-MMA folks can be, I feel that they might be, excuse me, I feel that they might use this story as a way to condemn the sport. Someone says, in addition to that, it's already happening. This is not my words, this is theirs. New York Post titled their article, quote, MMA fighter punched to death in cage. But the first sentence is, a mixed martial arts fighter from Portugal died Tuesday, three days after being hospitalized, with, in cage. Ooh, three days after being hospitalized with injuries from a fight. Uh, unbelievably irresponsible reporting really makes you appreciate professionalism here in MMA fighting, but New York Post is doing its job by putting fear into those uneducated in the sport. Well, okay. Um, I guess let's talk about this, shall we? Let's... Uh, get some of these facts down if we can. Um, here is the truth of the matter as I can determine it at this moment in time. We really don't know uh, what happened. And here's what I mean by that. You might find that a very obvious or in some ways unsatisfying answer and it probably should be unsatisfying. If you're looking for satisfaction from the story, not that the not that the fighter in question died, but if you're looking for some kind of satisfaction to say, aha, MMA is, it'll be okay, this was a freak thing, um, you know, don't get too concerned about it, it's sad for this guy, let's put some money in his GoFundMe page, but let's not challenge our worldview about this. I would really caution against that, actually. I've seen a lot of reporting from the MMA side of the equation saying that, well, this is probably just a freak accident. Really? How do you know that? Seems to me we have no way to conclude that whatsoever. Now, 
you, I went back and looked at some of the weigh-in photos. Um, by the way, did you realize his opponent's name, the gentleman who died, his opponent's nickname is The Hospital, which is just sort of an ominous thing. Uh, I know that is coincidence, but nevertheless, it was not great. I think his name is Charlie Ward. Anyway, neither here nor there. Um, the stoppage wasn't great, but it wasn't terrible. It, was, it didn't raise any obvious, unusual red flags. I went back and looked at the uh, weigh-in footage. I tweeted it out this morning. From an appearance standpoint, which is highly unscientific, but at least worthy of some level of um, screaming, right? Didn't appear to be any obvious red flags. He did not look sucked out. He made weight. His body did not appear to be uh, particularly um, demonstrating any signs of massive dehydration that we're aware of. So it's not entirely clear um, what happened to him. And I think that's sort of my point. I've seen a lot of people say, this is just an accident. I don't know that it is. I don't know that's an accident. This guy didn't just die out of nowhere. A guy died after a mixed martial arts fight. He complained of headaches uh, five minutes after the bout and was rushed to the hospital and was vomiting. So we know for a fact there was probably some head trauma. Okay, so where did that come from? Um, there could have been a pre-existing medical condition exacerbated from an MMA fight that wasn't detected. The question is, why wasn't that detected? Um, would normal screenings in most states have found that? Would a CT scan have found that? Uh, maybe it wasn't a brain issue. Maybe it's some other issue that um, ultimately manifested itself in the brain, but was, who knows, some other kind of issue that uh, uh, could have led to, you know, that the, the brain issue might have been the second or third problem to arise. We don't really know. We also don't really know what kind of quality of care what is, what was the name of this company? I actually reached out to them to get some information from them. Um, it's like a med event or ed, uh, God, I looked them up today. Let me, let me see if I still have the email up here. There are a couple of, here we go. No, that's not it. Well, I forget the name of the uh, event here. It's not regulated by the state in, in, our, in the Republic of Ireland. Um, they have to hire these third-party services to come in there. One of the more famous ones is Safe MMA. Um, another one, God, I can't remember the name of it now. Hold on. I'm going to find it now because it's driving me nuts. Um, Agar. Hold on just a second. I'm going I'm to find this because this is important. But take me a second. Here's a here's a point being, we don't really understand the level of oversight that's provided by um, these third party services. From what I can tell online, um, it seems to be a lot of we have uh, EMTs on staff, um, do some blood work, and that's really about it. That is woefully insufficient. That is not proper regulation at all. The idea that a promoter is going to, uh, of their own volition, out of nowhere, match the same kind of regulatory um, veracity that the state is going to require, more often than not, is never going to happen. It's just not. Even a well-intentioned promoter. They don't have those skills. A promoter is not in the business of regulating themselves, partly because there's a conflict of interest, partly because they don't know how to do it properly. 
Well, the state might have its own issues, but that that is that is their job. They have no other issue but that job. And and the regulation comes down to whether the matches are appropriate. In many states, you know, um, there's a question of hey, well, someone's had a pre-fight medical exam. What is that? What does that even mean? Who administered the exam? How long did they administer it? What did they do? What paperwork was required? Can we see the paperwork? Is there a trail of this? More than that, there are there are codes about um, where gurneys need to be, how ambulances need to be staged, how many medical personnel need to be there relative to how many competitors are there, um, how quick points of egress need to be, uh, who the local hospital is. There's a, there's a chain of custody where everything is planned out in the event of a scenario where someone has to be transported. We don't really know if any of those things are met. We have some reason to believe some of those things were met. And here's the point. I am not saying that the promoter is we know at fault and that this is uh, he must have had a pre-existing condition. What I am telling you is we don't have any information to make one conclusion one way or the other. But this, I have seen some premature reporting uh, that, you know, well, everything was done normally. We don't, we don't know that at all. There is a much more thorough investigation that has to happen. So if you want to be mad at the New York Post because they're out there saying MMA fighter beaten to death in cage, which is almost literally true, but okay, I see your point. It's sensational journalism. Then fine. You have a right to be angry at that. But you should also not run to accept the idea that everything is just hunky-dory here and this guy died via spontaneous combustion. No, no, no. A guy died fighting in a cage in front of other people. We need to figure out what happened. And if someone is, uh, did something wrong, either through malfeasance or negligence, we need to know about that, period. You do not get to run to the comfort of your worldview because you don't want it challenged. If somebody dies while you are staging an event, somebody messed up somewhere. That's just, that's just a basic rule of thumb you can accept. It might be that he had the rarest of medical conditions that was just not detectable, even if he had fought in New Jersey under USADA sanctioning. And if that's the case, then we will say so, and we will say what more could we reasonably have done, right? But we are far from that scenario right now. We know that there, may, there, there appeared to have been doctors there. No one has spoken to the doctors that I'm aware of, at least all of them, the ones in attendance. I think one or two have spoken. We haven't talked to any of the EMT officials. We don't have a timeline of how long it took to get him there. We don't know what happened when he got to the hospital. We don't. We, there's so much we don't know. We don't know. I don't know how much medical work he had done ahead of time. Blood test, it appears, at a minimum. But what, what is that? Okay, so he didn't have HIV, maybe. That doesn't tell us much. You cannot look at a scenario where someone dies in competition and say, don't challenge my love of MMA because something went wrong. If something goes wrong... You need to understand why, right? It's an unbelievable tragedy. And it happened in plain view. So before we declare it was just a freak accident, before we declare the promoter was wrong, before we declare the promoter wasn't wrong, it's just a function of medical screening that no one would have caught anyway, we wait. And we wait and say, I don't know what happened. The only thing we can say is we cannot conclude that this was just bad luck. I don't see nearly enough evidence to suggest that this was bad luck. It may be that case, but let's let a thorough investigation happen first so that this doesn't happen to anyone else again.
And I think we owe Jean that. I think we owe ourselves that. I think we owe the sport that. And I think we owe any future competitor in Ireland or any other place uh, that as well. I'm sure that all the actors here are well-intentioned, but well-intentioned people without core competencies or experience can make bad decisions or not even know how to make the right ones. There's a lot of unanswered questions here, a lot. And we don't really have enough of the answers yet. And I also think, and I know someone asked me this earlier, they were like, you know, what, what does this mean for, you know, the UFC? To me, it's not an accident that it hasn't happened with the UFC because they have pretty strict guidelines. And if guys have medical ailments, they usually, and I don't mean the case of, we don't know what happened to Joan, but I mean, you know, if guys don't have particularly sturdy chins, even if they're talented, they usually get weeded out beforehand. Or if they have a medical condition at some point, it's usually discovered before it ever happens in the UFC. Sometimes guys slip through. I forget the guy who was a nurse out in Texas uh, who had a couple of nice wins. One over Seth Pazinski, he had a heart condition, ultimately had to quit. Um, but it's, it's usually pretty rare. And so you have the highest level referees. You have better medical care. They know, I mean, they know what's required uh, of them to self-police. They've got a guy who used to do it in a uh, official government's position, now helping the UFC with that. And even then they make mistakes, but they haven't made one so tragic as to uh, see that happen yet. But um, I don't know if it's ever gonna happen in the UFC. I certainly hope not, but just by the law of averages, you have to wonder if it's just inevitable at some point. At some point, someone's gonna mess up or something's gonna happen that we can't anticipate or deal with. Uh, and then what? You know, I don't know what the answer to that's going to be. I think Ireland will be fine, but they should let the invest let the investigation play out. That is the ethical thing to do. I know the Minister of Sport has called for that. And look, maybe he'll go on a witch hunt. I don't know. I don't know enough about the dynamics of this guy in particular or the the situation in Ireland or um, politically if he has any pressure to do things in a certain way. And if the investigation turns out to be a sham, well, then we should say that as well. But um, as far as I can see right now, the state investigating this is seems on the surface if you were the minister of sport would you not investigate this would you just say oh okay they had a few doctors there in an ambulance and they seem to care for them that's that's the read i'm getting on this i don't know that we have really enough um information to conclude that to the letter this was done correctly moreover the footage i've seen of this uh the stoppage was um well the stoppage itself wasn't bad well, okay, the stoppage itself wasn't bad, but the fight itself, I'm told, went on too long. That they could have stopped this a lot earlier. So you can get scenarios where, now, in the end, Chris Weidman ended up being okay and Luke Rockhold ended up being okay. If you just saw the stoppage, forget all the other, all, all the other rounds, what would you say about it? You'd say, oh, stoppage seemed fine, but you're missing all the context. We need to see the entire fight. The entire fight. That's what we need to see. We need to see the body language of this kid well before the stoppage ever happened. And we need to talk to his corner and ask him what they heard. Was he slurring his speech between rounds? Was he responsive to your commands? What, did a doctor evaluate them between rounds? Did that happen? There's a lot of missing pieces here. And maybe all those things happened and maybe there were no red flags and maybe it was just some kind of medical condition that I mentioned before that we just had no way of knowing. I personally, and we don't know, my, my hunch is I don't buy that. I don't buy that this kid just died. That doesn't sound very right to me. It sounds to me because in every other case where someone has died virtually, there has been a 
moment in time you can point to or several moments in time where you could say something went wrong here. In the case of Sammy Vasquez, the first guy to die in Texas, you know, uh, it wasn't clear that he was, um, he got the proper screening ahead of time. He was older than 35. He should have had additional medical screenings and he didn't get them. Boom, state failure. It, none, I, I, I don't believe in magic. I don't believe in divine intervention. I don't believe in any of that stuff. I think we believe, I believe we live in a world of, of, of for the most part, at least enough to make some determinations here a law of, or a universe of, of, of uh, laws, uh, a universe of consequence, um, a universe of, of known quantities, enough that we can measure and, and inform ourselves about what happened here. I don't just believe that, well, you know, he just died. By the way, here is someone saying, uh, MMA fight could have been stopped earlier, says Connor. Speaking after the bout, which cost the Portuguese fighter his life on Monday, McGregor said he felt the fight had gone too far. Just uh, said just before the fighter's death from the Daily Mirror UK. He did end up praising the medical teams there, though. Medical teams intervening too late, it's science. It's not magic. They can't do things once things have become undone so much. So maybe the medical staff was great. Maybe it's an officiating issue. Again, I'm just not really willing to believe. And what was happening with this kid in training in the weeks and days before? We should talk to his camp. Where were they in this whole issue? Why haven't we heard from them? more than what we've heard from statements that have been made publicly that are, you know, that express sorrow and regret. So everyone here needs to be talked to. Every single, from the medical staff to the EMT, to the security at the venue, to the promoter, to the corner, everything. Everyone needs to explain this here because this kid just didn't up and die. That's what I have to say about that. All right, uh, I've got coffee today. On my quest to give up soda. I just want to say this one more time and we'll move on. This isn't about bashing the Irish. This isn't about uh, bashing the promoter. This isn't about, it's, not, it's really not about any of those things. It's just trying to take seriously the idea that we have a responsibility here. This is an incredibly dangerous thing that we do. Guys, fist fight up to the point and sometimes beyond of unconsciousness for money. And they train a lot to do it and they incur damage while they do it and before they do it. If you don't have everything in place to make sure bad things don't turn to worse things or, God forbid, the worst things, then they will. They will. If you are GSP, and I'm not, when is the best time for you to make your return? Jesus, that's impossible. Uh, I, I prefer he stay retired. I know most of you guys would be like, I hate that idea, Luke. Fine, you can hate it. He can come back and he can fight. Maybe he can win. You know, Lawler has certainly taken a lot more damage in the last year uh, than, I think, um, you know, many other UFC champions. He's already had a long career. Maybe he's more susceptible now than he was. A year or two ago, um, if that's what he wants to do, God bless him. You know, I, perfect time is doesn't matter to me. Perfect time only really matters to UFC or the calendar or whatever he wants. But if I don't know what he wants, I don't know who he wants to face. But for me, when guys retire, and you know, he, he didn't really retire, retire. He sort of said, "Yeah, walking away from the sport, never say never." Okay, so the same thing. But just speaking personally, when a guy walks away, that's how I feel about it. 
under under the rarest of circumstances will I change that. You got BJ Penn coming back against Dennis Seaver, which the world seemed to respond to with a collective. You know, no one really knows what to say about that. And again, you know, I'll let Jackson's, uh, they're the experts here. I was profoundly wrong about Arlovsky. Um, so we'll see what BJ does against Dennis Seaver at 145. I don't know that I believe that a comeback is even possible, but we shall see. All right. Someone asked me if I'm a good kisser. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, all right. <clears throat> Tune-up fights. Luke Habib, I believe his last name is pronounced Horker. Horcher or Horker, I don't really know. Uh, it's clearly a tune-up fight for Habib, no offense to Horker, who probably deserved to be in the UFC anyway. Do you think the UFC should schedule more tune-up fights for elite fighters who've been out for 18 months? It, it really depends, I think, on the individual. Like... GSP is not going to get a tune-up fight. Does he need one? Does he want one? I don't know. Some circumstances don't necessarily call for it. The rule I keep advocating for is ring rust affects most fighters most of the time. Not all fighters some of the time. Not all fighters all of the time. Not all fighters none of the time. Not most fighters all of the time. Most fighters most of the time. right? And so the circumstances there can kind of vary a little bit. But I think in this particular case, um, I like it a lot. You know, two years away, um, Porker is by no means a pushover either. Uh, he is a quite capable fighter who, and this is, and really, let's be clear about this. The tuna fights you get in boxing, there's less risk with it than there would be in MMA because even someone who is badly outmatched can still land a single shot. And you'd say, well, they can do that in boxing, but it's very rare that a single, I mean, you, you see one-punch KOs way more often in MMA than you do in boxing for reasons that should seem fairly obvious to you. Um, so even if you get tagged with a one shot or another, you can hold on, maybe you get a 10 count, you get time to recover in MMA. You just don't get any of that stuff. So tune up fights in some sense make less sense in MMA because of the risks involved. It's there, it's not nearly as much of a tune up process because of how risky it is, but I don't, in this particular case with someone as dominant as Habib has been, um, I find it to be entirely uh, a good reason, especially when the guy has not just been off. Like, John Jones has been off, and one of the things – this will be actually really interesting about John Jones. Let me, let me finish this point. Habib has been off due to injury. That has incapacitated him to some extent. There's been fits and, and starts. There's been goes and stops. There's been um, complete inability to train at all, I'm sure, in parts, right? Remember he almost retired from how painful that rib injury was? I mean, this has been a guy whose body has taken a beating. That being said um, – we see guys out for a long time in MMA, right? I just did the write-up for uh, Court McGee from the MMA Hour. This dude was out two years, too. Something happened in his wrist, what he called the ACL of his wrist, the, I think the scapular tendon or scapular ligament. I'm not sure which one. It came off. It, it became detached and rolled into his forearm. They had to put it back in. It broke again. They had to put it back in. He had rehab and surgeries and everything else. It took two years. Two years. It is very common to see guys gone for that long in MMA, especially at the elite level. And so it's not just a one-time thing like, oh, Habib is gone two years, you know. 
crew's gone three. Um, now, three is really unusual, but one to two years, that's due to injury, not any other reason, just injury. Highly common, highly common. And you saw John Dotson come back against Zach Makovsky and look not awesome. Rashad Evans coming back, well, he had a two-year stint. That was partly related to some professional obligations outside of the cage. How did he look? Not awesome. Now, partly that could be due to age as well, but you get the idea that, like, I think he'll, even if he loses on Saturday against um, Teixeira, I think we can all agree there's a reason to believe, and I suspect this will be true afterwards, Evans will look better against Teixeira, win or lose, than he looked against Bader. He looked listless and just unable to do anything. Even if he gets brutally KO'd against Teixeira, I bet beforehand he'll just physically look better, more mobile, more active, more in sync with what kind of offense he wants to get going. Anyway, um, all of this is very different than what John Jones is going through. John Jones has been on the shelf, but he was never injured. Now, he may have had some bumps and bruises, some things that were sore, and he did get a chance to heal them. But John Jones, is, this is what is, to me, the most fascinating thing about John Jones' situation, which is a bit of a side point I'm making here. How many times in a fighter's career do they get to take a, what I, I mean, what else do you want to call this? It seems like a sabbatical. How many times do they get to take a sabbatical where in the course of that sabbatical, they don't really get injured, they don't take fights, and they just train. And they just train, and they just train, and they just train. You could say, well, GSP just did that. No, he didn't. He tore his ACL during that time. I'm sure he trained all the rest of the time, but still, he tore his ACL. This, to me, is very unique. And the question you have to ask yourself is, would John Jones be better today if he had had no break and just kept fighting? Stayed uninjured, kept fighting. Maybe. I really wonder, though, and I don't know, but I wonder if he might be better as a consequence of having a moment in time in his career where financially it didn't hurt him. I mean, it, didn't, it wasn't good for him, but he had the resources to just float himself all this time and just stay in the gym and stay in the gym and stay in the gym and just reinvest in his career. I bet you this will pay dividends down the line. He will look back on that experience, not as like, oh, it was so great that I got put in handcuffs three weeks before my title fight, but he will be able to say, the things I was able to do from a training perspective, you can't get that time otherwise in MMA because you're always gearing up for an opponent. You're always in camp, camp. You don't get to like work on all these small little details that have been kind of like, I haven't had a chance to fix that yet. Someone like Habib didn't get a chance to do it to the same extent. Someone like uh, Court McGee didn't get a chance to do it to the same extent. Those guys need a hand, you know. For John, I'm less inclined to give him a tune-up fight for the reasons I just mentioned. But um, someone who's coming off of injury, you know, 18 months, two years, I don't see what the problem is with it is. UFC matchmaking. You and I could do it, right? Wrong. I guess many MMA fans, myself included, have dreamt of having Joe Silva's or Sean Shelby's job. But it's probably much more complex than even true MMA fans think. Can you walk through the considerations the matchmakers have to deal with when they're putting together the, the fight cards? Do you think you could do Joe Silva's job? I do not think I could do Joe Silva's job. Nor would I want to. Um, that would, to me, be awful. That's a very difficult job, and I don't want it. I mean, you guys probably know a lot, right? You have to deal with different fighters and managers, different personalities. You have to make fights that fans want to see. You have to do it under certain budgetary constrictions. 
You have to match up guys against their hometowns. You have to match up guys uh, against other contenders when it makes sense. You got to match up guys when they're available against other guys who they're available. Um, there's a lot of things that go into it. So we nitpick their matchmaking because that's my job. My job is not to, or, or to praise it when it's really good. You know, for example, I thought Anderson Silva versus Michael Bisping as matchmaking was sensational. I mean, truly brilliant, right? Um, but my job is not to sit back and say, well, that's their matchmaking. I'm not going to worry about it. No, that's not my job. My job is to be a bit of a pain in the ass about it. And that's kind of what I am. My job is to uh, say, could this have been done differently? My job is to wonder what the, if there are patterns of thought that go into forming matchmaking or what, you know, when they make a match, what does it say about their priorities or how they deal with fighters or managers or deal with budgets or whatever the case may be. Um, that, that's my job. But, it, but because I do that, you know, does not mean that I could be subbed into that role uh, and do an equally good job. My job is merely to nitpick, which I'm sure to them is outrageously annoying and stupid and uh, a waste of uh, my time and then the time of my readers. Um, but I would disagree. I think it's people like fans, people like media who constantly stay on him that while probably annoying to them, provides a service in aggregate. Uh, what's next for Holm? Jesus, I don't know. With Zingano, Tate, and Nunez all tied up and nothing announced for Holm, do you think they are planning to use her for a Rousey return fire? I could honestly, at this point, given what happened with, you know, they're just, you know, <laughs> I mean, at this point, seriously, why wouldn't Conor McGregor and Nate Diaz be fighting for a welterweight interim title? Why, why not? What's stopping you, honestly? Nothing. There's nothing. You could do it. People would cry about it. So what? There'd be another group of people a week later, and maybe even the same people would be like, you know what? People want to see that. You know what? It's going to make money. Because that's that justifies virtually any kind of nihilistic matchmaking. But truth be told, I wouldn't be surprised if they're holding a home. And maybe they give her someone down the queue. I don't know, because there are some reports that – you know, maybe, uh, you know, her, her, her team not getting along with UFC. Let me see how this looks so I don't, like, get all up in your grill. Yeah, okay. You know, maybe this was uh, – maybe she lost the, the Tate rematch because of how her management deals with UFC. Could be true. I don't know. We don't have enough information to make that definitive conclusion. But um, it would not surprise me if they make Holm versus Rousey for an interim title upon Holm's return. It really wouldn't. Uh, I could easily see that. I could easily see that. Someone says, if Holm remains true to wanting to stay active, I don't think she would wait for Rousey, which I agree with. There are four ranked bantamweight women Holm hasn't fought yet with no official fights currently. Karmush, Shevchenko, Murphy, and Evan Smith. I would advise her to fight one of them if I was on her team. And it wouldn't be Shevchenko, although it would be a fun fight. But you need someone who can test your ground. Maybe Karmush or Evan Smith. Uh, let's see. Someone says, I think Shevchenko makes sense considering Holman's interested in waiting on Rousey. Not if you really want to challenge your game. It doesn't make sense. Uh, tough 24 tryout cancellation. Luke, the UFC canceled the casting call for season 24 of The Ultimate Fighter yesterday. Did they just decide that having a flyweight season was a bad idea? Or is it a sign that tough itself may get canceled soon? No, I think it means that the majority of the best flyweights out there don't speak a lick of English. 
So how are you – like you might have one or two guys that can't speak English, but the best ones, the ones you're trying to get, they don't speak English. So that's, that's my idea about it. But, yes, there are some who do, of course. I'm not saying it's all guys from overseas, but the really exciting ones, they're somewhere else. Uh, okay. Remember, it's a television show. It's a show that has an impact on the sport in very serious and real ways, but it's also a television show. You always have to think about how can you make a show for television and what would that require and what do you need to do that. By the way, did y'all see they got Forrest Griffin and Chuck Liddell <laughs> as the coaches in Buenos Aires in, uh, for the next season of Ultimate Fighter Latin America? I have this debate with my wife all the time. There are many in the Latino community who will deny this, and they're just completely in denial about it. The word gringo is racist. Now, they'll say, no, 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 it's not. It's just, uh, it's neutral. It's neutral. Let me assure you. Let me assure you. I have been in, I don't know at this point, 50,000 conversations where the word is tossed around. It's not a positive word. It is at times a neutral word, admittedly. It's mostly a derogatory word. Now, not on par with the N-word, of course. It's not, it's not like in that way uh, a deeply toxic thing. But it's basically dismissive. It's basically dismissive, right? And I have told her I hate, her, I hate it when she uses that word around me. Because you go down meet her family and they just toss it around all the time. Again, mostly neutral. So in her case, when I'm around, mostly neutral. But, you know, you've never heard in Spanish, wow, I just really admire gringas they're just so great you've, you've you've never heard that you know you might have heard of uh you know some something sexual from the male side but from the female side you've not ne you've never heard that because it's a dismissive word trust me okay and i know some people will be like that's not true uh, well it's 100 percent true boy those those gringos <laughs> i just love the way they dance you never heard that you never heard that ever all right that being said, they picked a couple of gringos to host that show, did they not? Wow. I mean, you got two Americans hosting that show, man. But hey, they got some names. I guess it'll work. Someone says, uh, is Liddell and Griffin coaching the next season of Ultimate Fighter Latin America? Awesome. A desperate attempt at garnering views or simply epic beyond words? Probably a combination of all three. <laughs> probably a combination of all three. I'm, it might work. It, I'm not saying it's not going to work. People like those guys. They got a big name. Still, well, at least Liddell does. I don't know if Griffin still does, but yeah, he still does. He's still out there. He does media for him. So there you go. Uh, all right, the return of BJ Penn. It was announced this week that BJ is fighting Dennis Seaver at UFC 199. What do you think about his decision to come back? Yeah, we talked about this before. Fight doesn't blow anyone's skirt up, but maybe it's not supposed to. Maybe if he actually is rebuilding in the way that he claims he is, in the way that his team says is, he says he, that they say he is, and, and maybe he, again, maybe it's a tune-up fight. Maybe. We'll see. This coffee, by the way, is Basura. I mean, where did they book that? Here we go. Here's Guillermo Cruz. 
Uh, hold on, let me see if I can, can I say this on the air. See, I'm telling you, Latinos are in denial about it. Don't get me wrong, I love my Latino people. I married one, but y'all are a little bit in denial about it. Here we go. Okay, Guillermo just wrote me. He goes, in Brazil, gringo is not a bad word. At least, not all the time, ha ha. I'm telling you, the defense rests, Your Honor. Again, it's not so serious as, you know, to get all, I'm just so angry about this. But I, I know, I know. It's a word they use to, dis, to, to separate us from them. And it's a word they use to, like, dismiss like that, you know. Ay, gringo loco. All right. You got any funny stories from when you were a troublemaking kid or a teenager? Um, man, I did not get in much trouble as a kid. My mom was a disciplinarian dog. Um, remember, my mom grew up in Lebanon. She had a different sense of what it meant to <laughs> rear uh, disruptive children. Plus, my brother was like a star student, so I was always trying to chase his glory. Um, man, I didn't get in a whole lot of trouble. Uh, there's one, I don't know if I can tell that story. There's, uh, you know what? Let me do some digging to make sure I'm not going to get in trouble for this. But there was something I did in my AP, AP chemistry class, uh, which is, and I, and I only reason I mentioned AP is because it's relevant to the story. I wouldn't otherwise introduce the fact that it was AP. Um, let me, let me talk to someone about it. And I'll, if, if, if I can get away with talking about it, then I will. All right. Ilya Latifi and Nikita Krylov. Luke, over the past few years, there has been a strange cult following around these two European fighters. While both men are known for putting on exciting performances, they are so relatively low-level competitors that have been finished by OSP and Jan Blakowicz, respectively. I always mispronounce his name, too. Neither of them speak English. That's not true. Latifi does. Yet they are still able to win over the hearts of many North American fans. It has historically been difficult for foreign fighters to garner a large amount of fans due to a language barrier. But that doesn't seem to apply to these two for some reason. Question, what exactly is it about Latifi and Krylov that captures the imagination of the MMA fan base in your opinion? Well, let's put a big distance between those two. First of all, Latifi has legitimate wins. Krylov has some kind of legitimate wins, but not at the level Latifi does, first of all. Number one, number one. Number two, Latifi speaks English. Number three, you know, Latifi, you know, uh, jumped on the scene when there was sort of this hotness around Swedish MMA. Remember, he fought in as a last-minute replacement on a high, relatively high-profile card. You know, it was a fight night card, but nevertheless, you get the – I think it was a fight night card. Anyway, it was against Bosasi, and, you know, so everyone understood what the value of that was. And, um, and he has since improved steadily. But I think you're just talking about a bubble. You couldn't put Latifi and Krylov in a co-main or main event of a pay-per-view and expect it to sell. They don't have any casual fan base. At least, you know, I'm sure where they're from, they might, but not here in the United States. They don't have any casual fan base awareness at all. You're seeing very much the echo chamber of the hardcore fan base, and of, and to that point, inside the M hardcore MMA fan base, Latifi and Krylov, again, much more so Latifi, they do seem to have um, you know a burgeoning kind of fan base there who are interested in them and find them fun. And Krylov, you know, he's gotten better too, um, but I, I don't know, man. Once you get finished. Once you get finished with a a uh, Von Flew choke, I, I, I began to, I mean, not that I ever thought he was a whole, very good to begin with, but um, 
once you get finished with one of those, I began to be like, ugh. But okay, um, I, I think that's what you're seeing. I think also it's reflective of something. The MMA fan base, including the MMA hardcore fan base, has become much more international since you know I began covering MMA. Look at the look at the fact you have so many Irish hardcore fans, and you have Ukrainian hardcore fans, and you have Swedish hardcore fans, and whatever the case may be. You have a lot of people, um, even just in the English speaking world, who all communicate with each other, who have their own. You know, there's Canadians and Irish in the UK and so forth, and um, and I think all of that is is you know coalescing an international hardcore fan base that makes it easier for international fighters to rise to the ranks. You know, the Irish will be on the, the Irish in the UK and, and some of the other ones that maybe, you know, uh, well, I guess, I mean, English is spoken throughout Europe, but let's just sort of say English speaking nations. They're going to be able to see those prospects in Europe before we are. They're going to be able to tell us about them and, uh, and vice versa. And so there's, there's this exchange and, you know, look, they're kind of interesting. Uh, Krylov called himself Al Capone and put a, that photo he has in the Fight Finder, or of him dressed like Al Capone, which, by the way, is so weird, but okay, uh, he submitted that to them before he was ever in the UFC. And he's wearing, like, UFC gloves in it. That's weird. That's a weird thing. It's a funny thing. It's a weird thing. And then you've got Latifi, who, again, at first he just seemed like just an average donk on the scene. He didn't do all that well, even in shark fights, I think, against Emmanuel Newton. But uh, turns out he's gotten a lot better. And, you know, he's a hell of a, I mean, that dude is, deadlifts are f for real. Um, and he just has a quirkiness about him that people have discovered and latched onto. But it hasn't turned into this phenomenon where they're real commercial stars. They're hardcore darlings. There's a difference. Someone says, your question is blasphemous. Latif God and Cry God are legends. Sledgehammer and Al Capone, two of the coolest nicknames ever. I'm not sure about the Al Capone part, but okay. They are quirky, have entertaining fighting styles, and are the MMA equivalent of deities. Never, in all caps, use their name in vain ever again. Damn. Could McDonald versus Thompson end up being the most technical fight we have ever seen? No. Although it could be highly technical in one or two areas. So the clinch game and then at range. Um, I hesitate to call it, I hesitate to call anything that's not, if it doesn't take up all the different parts of MMA and jiu-jitsu and wrestling and striking and then all the different phases in between, then I hesitate to be like, well, this will be the most technical ever. But it will probably, I mean, how could it not be technical? Those guys don't know how to fight any other way. Right? They don't know how to fight any other way except in the most technical, proficient, scientific of ways. Truly. So, uh, and by the way, let me give a shout out to a fight that was a little, I, again, I'm not saying it's more technical than this one will be or the most technical fight ever, but a fight that I'm talking about that is at least technical and action-packed in different dimensions of the game. Go back and watch Frankie Edgar versus Tyson Griffin. That's, that's, that's a fight where, uh, again, not calling that the most technical ever, but that at another level could be a candidate for that because it touches all the different phases. That's what I'm talking about. Floyd Mayweather and MMA promotion. Floyd said very recently, quote, it's time for me to start promoting fights for the MMA. 
I love it when old. Th that's how you know someone is old, by the way, right? Telltale sign. If someone calls MMA the MMA, it's a guaranteed lock that they are, you know, in this case, Floyd's not, but every other case, they're driving a minivan and, you know, they think Led Zeppelin is just the coolest thing ever. I'm ready to get involved with that business now. Luke, what are your thoughts? Uh, I don't have a whole lot. I mean, even in boxing, he's, you know, he, he, I mean, maybe the promotions put on the Broner versus Theophane fight, but only because they were promoting Theophane. Like, um, Mayweather is not like a big time promoter in boxing. I mean, I guess he is by virtue of his stature, but it's not like they have a huge stable of guys. How many Mayweather fighters can you name? You know, there's not there's not a lot. Like they don't. He has some he takes care of, of course, um, but it's not like there's a ton of guys under his name that he just promotes the hell out of. Um, still, you know, I, well, Showtime's fallen a bit of a hard time recently, but Top Rank is still doing a lot of good work. You know. Um, so we'll see. I mean, we'll see what he can do. I don't know how that's going to work. I, I'd be look if Floyd can do for MMA fighters what he did for himself. Bring on Floyd. I got no problem with it. I just I, I would be very careful about you know saying what he's going to do in terms of staging shows and creating shoulder programming and to the extent the UFC is you know a, a media company. I, I I don't see that at all. So he, what he might do is end up signing a few guys. Five to ten. Ten would be a lot, but let's say somewhere in that range. And then, you know, try to take care of their interests. But I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. I, I, just manage your expectations, is I guess is what I'm saying. Because even, even in the world he comes from, it's not – he might have a big footprint only because of his name, but, you know, he doesn't have a ton of guys. More likely to retire this year. Gabriel Gonzaga after being knocked out for the ninth time on Sunday or Mir if he gets suspended two years. I would still say Mir. Well, he's got it tough, doesn't he? I mean, maybe he used. I don't know. I don't know. That stuff doesn't wind up in your system by accident. But you guys see, um, read the Deadspin article today on, on WADA and Meldonium and how they messed that up, including maybe for Sharapova, by the way. So, I'll just say that. Uh, okay. True, false. The more John Jones's notoriety grows, the more pay-per-view buys we produced from his fights. There's probably a limit to that, but for now, it's true. Frankie Edgar knocks down Jose Aldo at least once in their rematch. True. People stopped putting snake emojis on Dillashaw's Instagram because Conor McGregor, Conor McGregor suffered his first UFC loss. I haven't noticed, but that would... That seems to make sense. Cyborg being put in the men's division on the UFC's website wasn't really an accident. Did that really happen? I didn't see that. Uh, so I'll say false. Uh, or uh, true, or whatever, I don't know. Out of all the fighters in the UFC, Conor McGregor would have the most success with a boxing career. Uh, out of all of them? No, but he would certainly be at the top of the list, right? Or near the top. Luke Rockhold and Cowboy Cerrone are more dangerous on the ground than they are on the feet. False, but it's close. Aaron Pico and Ed Ruth will transition now to MMA since they both failed at the U.S. Olympic trials. Well, Ed Ruth has already stated he will. I don't know about Aaron Pico. 
So I'll say false. Brian Barberina fighting Warley Alves is, is the UFC's way of punishing him for defeating Sage Northcutt. You know, I thought that too. <laughs> Here's Brian Barberina coming off a sensational win um, in terms of, you know, what it means for his career. And then uh, they give him this just monster from Brazil. I'm Again, I, I don't know what the thought is behind that one, but you look at it and you're like, ooh, they did not do you any favors. Uh, although I guess they didn't give him the Northcutt fight, you know. So maybe they did do him some favors, but not with that match. It's not with the Warley Alves match. Uh, Chuck Liddell saying he would beat John Jones is as crazy as Anderson saying he would fight McGregor at 170. Nope, it's crazier. John Jones would be an appropriate main video game character in the next installment of GTA. I don't play uh, GTA. I don't play GTA. Can I tell you how much I suck at FIFA? Oh, my God. <laughs> I gave up on the game for like a legitimate three, four months. And then I played it the other day, and I was just, I just, I was like, this is why I gave up on it. I don't know what I'm doing wrong, but, like, I'll literally have four to one. I'll, I'll play with Real Madrid, and I'll play, like, straight-up MLS teams, and I can barely score them. I'm so pathetic, it's sad. Uh, all right, time for a fighter's union. I mean, it's been time. Issues like the Reebok deal, USADA's flagging practice, fighter safety and fighter pay, calls for a fighter's union. Um... What about the Ali Act? Bloody Elbow reported that Congress might propose a bill. We'll see about that. GSP, John Jones, and Aldo, all three of these fighters have major issues with management recently. Do they talk amongst themselves? Why can't they come together? I don't know. I, I'm not sure how you want me to answer this. Like, you're asking me, would a fighters union have created a better term for the Reebok deal? The answer is yes. If you're asking me, would they have at a minimum included some protections um, for fighters in um, the USADA collection and testing process? I'm sure the answer to that is yes. Again, everyone, everyone is all in favor of fighters' rights until anti-doping comes along. I'm not sure why. We just trust USADA to do the right thing all the time. That's, that's a, it's, an it's an institution run by humans. That seems to me not quite adequate. Um, and even, again, even if you ask them what things do you think could go wrong, and then they, in good conscience, try to address those things, they still won't get it right. They cannot get it right. You need another party who has a separate set of interests to call them out on it at the negotiating table to make those things equitable. It, it can't work otherwise. Not to the extent you want it to anyway. Mighty Merbeck Tysimov. Boy, he looked good on Sunday, didn't he? After Tysimov's impressive fourth straight KO performance at Zagreb, what do you think, excuse me, what would you like to see the UFC do with him next? Is it time for a serious step up in competition for Tysimov? Yes. Top 15 guy. I think everyone can pretty much agree with that. He's ready. He's got, what, over 30 fights now? I think he's 26 and 5, something like that. He's ready. He's absolutely ready. It's time to see what he's really made of. Bar none, period. That's what it is. By the way, I'm going to do this now because it's 2 o'clock. I'm going to get on Snapchat. Y'all can see my, my janky setup here. If you guys don't follow me on Snapchat, you should. I'll, I'll snap with you. That may not sound appealing to you, but if it does, I will snap with you. Let's do this. Ah! The phone sucks. There we go. Ready? There we are. We're on Snapchat. This is me. This is my setup, y'all. This is my janky setup. But it's mobile, and it works. So there we go. Thank you for watching the live chat. We're on Snapchat. This is me, Snap. This is my setup, y'all. This is my janky setup, but it's mobile, 
and it works. So there we go. Thank you for watching the live chat. And I will post that to my story. There we are. All right. Fantasy matchups. Who wins? Boy, you guys love these questions that I am profoundly ill-equipped to answer. All right, Weidman versus Gustafson. Ooh, wow, that's a good one. Uh, I would say Gustafson. Prime JDS versus Rumble Johnson. Prime JDS. Pettis versus Will Brooks. That's tough. I don't feel like we can know. I don't feel like I know enough about Will Brooks's upside to say anything, but probably will. Gil Melendez versus Michael Chandler. I will take. Ooh, that's a tough one. Though. I'll take Chandler. Aldo versus Barboza. Barboza because of the size differential. Mendez versus Cruz. Chad Mendez versus Dominic Cruz. Cruz. Nate Diaz versus Tony Ferguson. Ferguson. Neil Magny versus Tumanov. That's a tough one, but I would go with Tumanov. Roy Nelson versus Derek Lewis. Is that not going to be so great? Two slightly, well, one overweight guy, one, you know, but two bigger, two men of larger carriage with tremendous punching power and not the healthiest appetite for defense, slinging them dogs at each other. That is the stuff dreams are made of. All right, Al Iaquinta versus Tysimov. Ooh, that's a tough one. That's a very tough one. Hmm, Iaquinta, but it's tough. Kimbo versus Vanderlei. Probably Vanderlei for sure. Uh, Jiu-Jitsu seminars. Luke, of, the, of all the Jiu-Jitsu seminars you've attended, who would you highly recommend? It really depends on what you're looking for. Um, I would recommend Gary Tonin for everyone. For everyone, for everyone, for everyone. Because... Um, He's doing things with leg locks, but he's doing them in a, not just a merely a scientific way, but everything about what he's doing, it's not about put your foot here, put your leg there. Uh, when you see this, grab that. It's very much about what are the conditions that have to be established physically, what muscles are you using? And he does it in a way where it, it just all makes sense. You know why you're using that muscle because you, you can feel it with your legs and your hamstrings and you know what's going on and um, a lot of, and I mentioned this in the Heavy Hands podcast, and you get a lot of guys who are elite competitors. They're not great teachers. I mean, they can show you things, you know, because obviously they they know a lot of things, but they're not necessarily the best at just instructing you. Um, Gary Tonin is both an elite competitor and really excellent at instructing you. Now, with that being said, um, it also depends on what you want to learn. If you want to learn things for elite jiu-jitsu competition, another guy I would recommend is Marillo Santana. Marillo Santana. He might be the best guy to never win the, the Worlds at Black Belt with a Gi um, because he is terrifying to watch roll with other Black Belts in the room. Terrifying. The things he does to them. Uh, for some reason, competition, he always comes up just a little bit short at medium heavy, you know. I guess Keenan has made things hard for him recently, but um, for sure him. Now, there might be other great ones out there that I've not even mentioned, but there's been a couple guys I've gone to who have, who have been world champs, by the way. My seminars weren't great. They weren't great, you know. Uh, from my inbox, this is someone who wrote this to me. Yeah, my email. Uh, after watching Ian Entwistle this Saturday, I started to wonder, why is there such a huge discrepancy between the way Husamor Palhares is able to take advantage of a leg lock and everyone else on the UFC roster? Largely, leg locks um, aren't done all that well generally. 
And if there's an issue with them, it's because there's a technical issue with them. I've actually asked this question to Gary Tonin himself. Uh, and Gary's point was basically that, that, that his fundamentals are really, really tight, but also that once, and you guys know this, once he gets a hold of it, a lot of guys will crank on a heel hook, but they don't have the horsepower that he does or the ruthlessness that he does. And so there's just a, a certain amount of much more lethality, but it's more than that. He's got interesting setups. He's got uh, much better control, right? He traps your far leg, uh, not as a bonus, but as a automatic criteria of the position so that when you roll, he rolls with you. You can't separate, right? He blocks you from doing things with the far leg. Um, there's just a lot that he does in the finer details of things that make that work. You know, I, I did a whole technique talk on his Kimura. Forget about his leg locks. How about his Kimura? On the, the one he did on Jake Shields, bro, that is a textbook Kimura combined with the fact that he probably, I mean, it must suck when he cranks on that. Golly. He had everything right. I mean, everything right. The way he was driving his hips and turning them over, the, the grip he had. The where he had Shields' hand in relation to his back, ev everything, everything was perfect. It was perfect, and uh, and you know you don't. It's not easy to tap Jake Shields. Whatever you want to say about the eye gouging, um, even if you eye gouge Jake Shields, it's not easy to tap him. And uh, somehow Paul Harris found a way. Someone says, in light of the recent tragedy in Dublin, I was wondering what your thoughts would be on the potential ramifications of a death in the octagon or a death caused by damage inflicted in a UFC octagon. Man, I really don't know. My guess is it would also be situationally dependent. You know, I also think, look, this was, this was what, TEF1 or something, their first show. Uh, I don't know the history of this promoter. That's another thing. I want to learn about the history of this promoter. Let's see something here real quick. Oh, nice. Okay, great. Um, but UFC has a long record. So in the event that one happens, and it will be tragic if and when it happens, and knock on wood, hopefully never in my lifetime, or anyone's really, um, but they at least have a really long safety record. You ever seen those, um, you ever been to like a manufacturing plant? You ever seen those? It's like, it's been 672 days since any you know, workers' safety issue uh, took place or something like that. They'll, they'll count each day, right? Because you can only go one day at a time, and it's important to see that, like, you've had such a long time between, you know, workplace incidents related to safety. That, I mean, they've got a long record. They've got a long record, and I think they'll be able to lean on that in the event something happens. WWE survived when, um, I'm not sure which gentleman it was, he leapt to his death, unfortunately. Um, and, and it was controversial. I remember seeing it all over the news here, uh, but they lived. Uh, and I live because, generally speaking, um, they do the right things, you know. And I think UFC, you can say whatever you want about fighter contracts and Reebok and everything else. Um, when it comes to doing this safely, I don't know who does it more safely than they. I really don't. So I think I think you can lean on that. And then you combine that with the, this tenure of, you know, they, I mean, forget a death. They've never even had paralysis. I mean, high school sports can't even talk about that. Right? Cheerleading can't talk about that. Division one football can't talk about that. Um, so, so I think they'll be okay. But again, it's not like I feel gross even saying, oh, they'll be fine. Like to me, it's like, you know, you, uh, you do need to have a sober view about what's happening here. But at the same time, you know, rushing back to the comfort of your 
hobby um, and overlooking the death of something to me feels kind of gross. Uh, all right, Tiny Tornado versus Thug Rose. I like Thug Rose in this one. I really do. I thought that, you know, you can say whatever you want about the, you know, the rawness of the talent of Paige Van Zandt, but it was just so clear and so clinical. And, and so, and I mentioned this also on the Heavy Hands podcast, the cleanliness of Nama Yunus's technique. It, not, only, not only does it like, it looks pretty, it looks pretty while working, while unleashing fury on her opponents. Um, I really appreciate that. I think she's come such a long way. She's 22 years old. Her, you know, her name kind of got ahead of her, and now everything's kind of getting centered again. And maybe it will get out of control again too. But I think it, I think it got centered again. And when it did, it just looked so much better. It just looked so much better. And uh, she really has has done a lot for herself. And I just think Torres is you know physically the better athlete maybe, and stronger and the better wrestler. But I think she's going to have her hands full this time. Leg entanglement positions in MMA. Luke, do you feel like the leg entanglement positions are underutilized at the highest levels of mixed martial arts? Positions include ashigurami, that's the common one you see for leg locks, double outside ashigurami, that's much less using one. Watching the Ian and Whistle fight this weekend was interesting at everything from greasing allegations to verbal submission from 50-50. Yeah, that was a bit of a weird one too. Ashigurami is your common setup leg lock position, right? you got one leg captured, you're blocking the other one. That's what Ashigarami is, right? And you always want to be scooted in very tightly on Ashigarami. Um, leg entanglement is still a developing issue for the reasons that you saw. You can pick a number of fights. People have mentioned to me, I, I had tweeted that um, Enwistle uh, Pe uh, Perez looked similar to me, like to um, um, Trigg. And Dennis Hallman, Frank Trick, Dennis Hallman. And people are like, what about um, Paul Harris and uh, Belcher? Of course, that's another example too, but I just meant the specific way that it looked. You know, a guy just sort of leaning on one. Because Perez, he was fighting the leg locks, but he was fighting them in a way where he kept getting back into them. So, like, he would get out of them and then get stuck again, and he would get out of them and get stuck again, and he would get out of them, and then eventually, you know, he, he won the fight because during that whole process, he was just beating on Entwistle. Okay. Um, that's sort of, I mean, that's not exactly having to Trig either, but Trig was beating on him while stuck in position too. The difference between Pajares and Belcher is Belcher just beat him and then got out of it and then took his will. That's a little bit different. Like, look how this fight was finished. You had Perez, one leg on top in a 50-50 on top, as he mentioned before, and Whistle trying to crank it, holding onto it, while Perez is just literally one hand posted on the mat and just driving the other one unobstructed into his face. That's much more what happened in the Holman trick fight. Um, because I just don't think guys have enough appreciation for that position. They don't have enough touch on it yet. Um, you know, you see, a, you see a lot of leg lock guys just feel like, my leg locks beat everyone in the gym. My leg locks beat everyone in competition nogi. My leg locks have beat everyone in the regional scene. Well, this ain't the regional scene. It, you're dealing with a different level of competitor here who is not going to tap to something like this unless it is dreadful for them. And if they're punching you in the face, establishing those dreadful conditions is going to be a lot harder. A lot of times these guys don't forget, like, if you're a regional-level fighter, you have a bit of a name on that regional circuit, right? You're, oh, you're that guy who does those leg locks from that school. Everyone knows you, you know? There's a bit of a fear and intimidation that can go in with that. Um, there's none of that, or at least very little of that when you jump to the next level, when you jump to the national, international level. 
those guys, you think any guy from Dagestan gives an F about your leg locking reputation in the Southwest? They don't care about that at all. So that's sort of what I mean. What is worse, trying to learn jiu-jitsu from an online resource or learning from a small-town instructor who is a semi-donk? Trying to learn online is worse. You have to go and roll. The online stuff complements the in-the-gym stuff. It, it enables you to look at that and then try it or look at that and say, aha, that gives me an idea to then go try it. Um, but it's not a substitute. Learning online is not a substitute for learning in the gym. It is a complement to learning to the gym. Um, always remember that. That doesn't mean you can't learn some things online, but it's never going to be as good. It should take the ego. As a fan of Misha Tate, I am, of course, very happy to finally see her win UFC gold. That being said, I've become annoyed with the narrative of and whining of Holmes saying that she was winning on the scorecards. Well, she was. I gave you a chance. You owe me a rematch or her manager trying to throw Misha under the bus regarding not getting a rematch. It's similar to me when Hendricks lost to GSP via decision, which he shouldn't have because he beat him, and then kept griping incessantly. I did everything I could to win, blah, blah, blah. Question, do you think fans will turn on her eventually? the way they turned on Hendricks if she keeps this up. No, because she has basically moved on. Yeah, she's moved on from that. I mean, I think she's even said, just give me another fight at this point. Post-Polaris thoughts of Agazarm versus Shields. I actually spoke to AJ about it. Had him on my show. Uh, would you share your thoughts on the fiasco that was Jake Shields versus AJ Agazarm? It's two competitors who d didn't like each other to begin with. Agazarm had a major size disadvantage. And I'm not... I, he swears to me, swears that uh, he didn't gouge him. He certainly put his hand on his face and was pressing into it, but that he never like intentionally tried to dig his fingers in his eyes. Um, you know, watch the tape and decide for yourself. If in fact he is telling me the truth and that's that's not what happened, then you know he was certainly, if not outright illegal, what he was doing a little bit on the unprofessional side. But you know, those guys had bad blood, and I guess that's what it's all about. If Jake Shields feels like he's been wronged, he should say so. I tried to get him on my show, and he was like, I'm in London. I'm not, I'm not doing any interviews right now. I'll do some when I get back. So it's kind of past this point of this, the stage. But um, Agazarm swears to me he wasn't doing anything illegal. The video is not in his defense, even if that's true. But he also, um, you know, he gave up a lot of weight to do that match. So I could see him trying everything, you know that he possibly could to get away with, short of, or maybe even including cheating. What were your thoughts on JDS's Sparta kick? Yeah, that was pretty great, wasn't it? He gave him the old, he gave him the old front kick to the sternum, son, and he didn't knock down someone light either. That was Big Ben Rothwell he put down. I mean, you it's one thing for Arlovsky to, to joke around and do it on John Dodson. It's quite another to knock down Ben Rothwell. Golly. Um, real quickly about uh, that performance, if we can, um, I did a little digging on that. For people like Holly Holm and Junior Dos Santos, who have a consistent style of offense that usually has a rhythm to it, right? they like to work behind a, a not a singular, but a, a, a 
uh, a system where there's a first wall of defense, which is an offense, which is the jab and the cross, and there's lots of movement. I, guys like that and ladies like that, you can measure their performance a little bit, right? You can measure it. You can say, um, what do their numbers look like when they win? What do their numbers look like when they lose? And I went and I did a little digging for JDS, almost without exception, almost without exception. Even in rounds where he stops guys, like he'll win the round because he put the guy out in like three minutes, the numbers still match up. JDS does really well when he's landing between 20 and mid-30s of uh, significant strikes. Somewhere at 20 to 32, 34, and more than 20, more like 24, but I've seen it as low as, low as 20 and it still count. And he used to ha- he needs to have a percentage of, you know, roughly 50% of that landing. So you know, he'll throw roughly anywhere from 40 to 70 strikes in a round, and then 20 to 35, let's say, will land. That's when he wins. When he gets below that, that's when he does not win. Almost, almost without exception. And you go back and look at the fights he lost, um, the Kane fights, where he was down in the single digits. And why did he lose that fight? Well, because his, he was being occupied and having to deal with Kane getting off of him. And you go down and look at the Overeem fight. Why did he lose? Well, because Overeem never let him get, you know, JDS isn't just a rhythm guy. He's a, he's a rhythm cascading guy. Like, it just gets more and more and more and more. Like, he just pours it on. If he never gets that process started, he can't pour it on. And Overeem, with his own movement, uh, never really let him do that. And, of course, Overeem did a bunch of other things, too, kicking the legs and kicking him in the stomach and keeping him off of him and minding his distance. And um, there was a lot that went right for him. So if you can control that, you can really – you can beat him. And, and another thing that uh, JDS did was interesting in this fight, and maybe this is what so, – so let me take a step back real quickly. If you, can, if you can narrow the volume of his offense, you can beat him. You can definitely beat him. Uh, to me, in that sense, he has not changed. Everyone's like, this is the JDS is back. Mm, sort of. He's definitely, that was a great win. He's definitely a top contender again in the division. No doubt about it. But he did take all that abuse. That, that's not, we didn't imagine that. Like, that is real. Um, he is still susceptible to those kinds of things. He, but uh, one thing that I did like in this fight was if you go back and look at the proportion, the ratio of his offense, even when his jab was active, say, in the Carwin fight, it was he threw a handful of body shots. He threw, I think a majority of his punches in this fight were body shots. So you can see he's just mixing it up a lot more. So if you add better movement, because if you go back and watch this, his movement in the second and third cane fights, the movement's not great. If you go back and you watch the movement in this one, it's much better. Uh, he stays off the fence line because he knows he can't really want to fight there. Uh, but if you can't stop his jab, especially now that he's on the move more and he's bearing up his shots more, jabs to the body, jabs to the head, going to be a long night for you, man. JDS, is uh, he's really cleaned up some of his things. Now, this makes him less dangerous, right? I mean, how many of those big right hands did he land? A few. A couple, maybe. And maybe those would have put out someone else because, you know, Ben Rothwell is still really durable. Fair enough. But I think, for me, he's, you know, he's gotten a little bit more of a guy who just jabs, jabs, jabs. And if he can find the cross, he will. But if he can't, he'll just chew you up with his jab. And his jab is powerful, too, of course. Don't get me wrong. But um, he's not the same guy who'd be like, jab, maybe one more jab, and then this monster overhand right, you know. Yeah, those were not made with Arabica beans, I can assure you. Uh, it's 2.15, actually passed. So let's go to the Twitter machine if we can. Pick one NBA game to attend tonight. Kobe Bryant final game or Warriors chase 73 wins? Warriors chase 73 wins. 
Someone says, uh, they have a picture of Mel Gibson in the movie, Get the Gringo. And someone says, that time Mel tried to take the word back. Probably did. Uh, true, false. Chuck and Forrest get me to watch an entire season of Tough. Also, Latin America. No, no chance. Uh, what are your thoughts on Conan and Bud, featherweight title fight, being on Belter 155, untelevised prelims? I don't know how in the world that makes sense to them. I don't know what they're thinking with that. That's just epic miscalculation. What can Reebok do to get a potential season two release right? They need to make sure that they need to have a set of designs that before they ever go to print, before they ever go into production, and I don't mean just kit designs. I mean, I mean they need to have a whole new wave of things. And they need to do focus groups with fans. They need to select fans from Twitter, from events, from everything. Sit them down, make them sign non-disclosure agreements. What do you like? What do you not like? Why? What direction should we go? And then slowly morph into that. The, the thing they did wrong the first time was a number of things was, you know, the hastiness was which they had to produce all that stuff, which made it impossible to get it right anyway. But more than that, they just seem so disconnected from what the fan base looks for and likes and wants. If you've got time on your side now, that's good, but don't just use time and what you think everyone in the room was a good idea. That's a bad idea. Go out and ask. Don't leave it to chance. Do not leave this to chance, because if season two, whatever you want to call it, the next generation of kits and designs come out, and they're all Basura, there'll just be no going back from that point, man. There'll just be no going back. I still believe this is salvageable. Remember, we're talking about only the first year of this coming up in July. Agree or disagree? The only positive to, to the Hendo versus Leota Machida fight is the possibility of them retiring. Well, I don't know if that's the only good thing, but it's certainly one of them. Be fair, Luke. Gringos can't dance. Right. Here's the difference, which they can't. But if they could, they, wouldn't, they still wouldn't admit it. There's a difference. Um... Hey, Luke, who do you think will win the Champions League? I mean, is that a serious question? Um, well, since some people might not know, I, I am a supporter of Real Madrid. And yesterday, our buddy, CR7, played out of his mind and um, was the best player on the field, the pitch by a million miles, and it was a delight to watch him. What I want to know is, is Bale going to be here? Is Bale going to be here next season? Is Isco going to be here next season? Thomas going to be here next season? I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen with those guys. Take it easy. Led Zeppelin is the coolest thing ever. Yes, but it's also not cool when you drive a minivan. Verhoeven uh, challenged better Hari on Dutch TV, and Hari accepted. How bad is Hari going to get beat up very badly? If, the, if it even takes place, which I doubt that it will. Is Patrick Cote the only fighter in UFC history to have knockdowns in three different weight classes? Uh, that's a question for fight metric, but that sounds about right. Light heavyweight, middleweight, and welterweight. Look, what is the difference between real-world strength and weight strength? Which is better for BJJ? Real-world strength is better for BJJ. Weight strength is probably a liability. Not totally, but somewhat. The best, the best BJJ guys typically, not always, typically, look like swimmers. Right? Long, lean, muscular, but not 
You know, they don't have uh, they don't have gains with a Z, right? They're not they're as as my boy Louis Marco would say, they're diced to the socks. Um, that's what you're looking for. You're looking for guys who are slender. They don't have a lot of uh, fat on them. They're flexible. They can, they have good cardio. They can go for a long time, and they definitely have a muscular build. But they don't have the kind of build where they go in there and they you know they can just murder 315 on incline bench for 15 reps. No no sweat. I used to go to a Mexican restaurant back in the day to feast. They called me GG, Grande Gringo, because I ate a lot. Yeah, well, they were laughing at you. Trust me. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Isn't that the truth? What do you think is the next move for the welterweight belt? Condit rematch or holding off until Rory versus Wonderboy comes out? Ooh. I mean, at this point, if they want to put on a Condit rematch with Lawler at 200, There's just no consistency to 200 anymore. They can just do what they want. I mean, they, they, they could have always done what they want, but they can do what they want without much consequence at this point. I mean, there, there would be the three title fights, and that would be problematic, but or maybe it wouldn't. I don't know. Does Overeem get a title shot with an impressive win over Arlovsky? I think he does. Look, who does? So this is a thoughtful and reasonable explanation on the fighter death. Thank you, I hope. Um, who, who does Nick Diaz fight next? Uh, man, that's a good question. I, okay, y'all can say what you want. I don't even care if it comes off of a loss. I, I think the world would miss something if there was never a Nick Diaz versus Robbie Lawler too. I fundamentally believe that. I don't know how they want to make that or if they can. If you're asking me who, who I want to see, I don't know about next uh, in terms of what is the most appropriate fight in those considerations. But in a general abstract way, in terms of just what do I like, I really think Diaz Lawler 2 needs to happen. I fundamentally believe that. Is there anything that could be done to make you watch Ultimate Fighter or other UFC original? Well, I watch other UFC original programming. Um, I'll watch occasional roads to the Octagon. I'll watch some of the stuff they put online. Um, but Ultimate Fighter, I, I mean, no. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know. But it doesn't interest me very much. What's next for Pico? Yeah, we'll see. I've heard some folks for some people saying he wouldn't um, he wouldn't come back. Someone said asked me about my supplements. Yeah, I'm taking a bunch of supplements now. Well, let me see if I can find this. Well, understand that most of what you take needs to come in the form of uh, food. I take this for uh, recovery. BPI uh, sports for uh, these are my branch chain amino acids. This is just for recovery. And then for my gains with a Z, I take CreaPure Creatine Drive. Um, this is like the best creatine you can buy in the market, right? And it's monohydrate. So let me say something about creatine because I've been taking creatine on and off since I was like 20, 21. And I'm back on it now. And uh, I'm back. I've gotten heavy into weightlifting in the last six months because remember when you guys I jacked my back up? I had to get in the weight room to fix it slowly. And I kind of just sort of got on a rhythm and I'm. I've been in the weight room now for uh, – I'm going all the time because it's just making me feel a lot better. I'm not waking up – you know, you go to BJJ, man, you just wake up feeling awful uh, a lot of the times. At least I did. Um, quick note on creatines. You don't need anything that has creatine flavor in it. You don't need anything that has creatine with caffeine, creatine with any kind of stack. You just need pure creatine monohydrate. 
That is uh, all you need. Creatine is the most studied supplement uh, in the history of sports. Um, but what they have determined is that there are no added benefits conferred with any of the other artificial sweeteners put in or uh, extra ingredients. You just need the monohydrate. You don't need to load it 10 milligrams down to five. You don't need just take it every day. You don't need to cycle it. It's not androgenic or anabolic. Just five milligrams a day. Someone says the guy you're thinking of is Owen Hart. He didn't leap to his death. He fell in a poorly planned and executed stunt. Okay, fair enough. That's the WWE guy who perished, unfortunately. Um, you might be right. You certainly, I, I, I don't know, but um, I take your word for it. So someone says, what is your favorite Rich Piana supplement? I don't take any Rich Piana supplements, but I can't recommend Nutrex's creatine drive enough. Five milligrams a day. Doesn't matter when you take it. You can put it with your favorite sports drink if you want. You can take it with caffeine because there's an offset effect. If, if there is, in fact, the, 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 the caffeine dehydrates you, then the amount of liquid you put in to consume it um, counteracts that. So there you go. Someone says, maybe I'm just perpetuating the whole thing, but gringo is still a funny word. Oh, it's a super funny word. Just don't let anyone tell you from Latin America that it's a neutral word, because it's not. 100% it's not. It's sometimes neutral. It's often that. Um, With regulation being called for by Irish ministers, how much trouble would Irish MMA be without Connor's success? One wonders if fights like that would be taking place to that with the same kind of regularity in Ireland without Connor. Um, but probably a lot, yeah. What do you think of the Irish Times Guardian writer referring to Carvalho's death as a legalized killing? Well, that's a bit dramatic. Um, but at the same time, there is a little bit of fact to that, unfortunately. Thoughts on UFC reportedly telling Mitrion that the fighters are not the main product they're selling? Well, two things to, to respond to that. Number one, um, here we go, Louis Morco. Number one, we don't, we did not get Lorenzo's word, so we don't know what his response to that would be. And I think that's important to the conversation because it is a contra, it is a very incendiary thing that Mitrion is saying. So, not saying he's wrong, just saying it'd be nice to get um, Lorenzo's perspective. The other part is, though, I have heard similar things from other fighters who dealt with UFC management in the past, being that, you know, they certainly value that more so than what Mitrion had indicated in his conversations, but that the UFC definitely believes that what people want to see is the UFC show with these individual products built in. Um, and, of course, that's there's nothing wrong with the way the UFC views themselves. They view themselves as the source of things, as the reason why X is is what it is and why they're popular and, and, and what they've done. I really don't have a problem with that. I frankly don't even care. They're allowed to view themselves however rationally or irrationally they want. The difference is fighters should have some kind of mechanism or protections in place to also assert their view of themselves. And when the two meet, I think that's when consumers win the best. Trying to police how the UFC views themselves, I don't know if that's ever really going to work. They have a strong view of themselves. They pull themselves from 40 million down to however many billion up there are right now. They, of course, are going to view themselves as uh, a certain way that maybe we won't. Why would you argue with them about that? What would be more helpful, it seems to me, is for fighters to be in a position where they can challenge that in real-world terms as things are written on a contract. That seems much more valuable to, from what I can tell. Uh, okay. We have to go. I have to go because there's so many other things to do today. Um, thank you so much for watching. 
please give it a thumbs up. Remember, plenty of UFC on Fox 19 coverage from MMA Fighting. Our crew is going to be with Ariel and uh, Esther and Casey. They're all going to be in uh, Tampa. I believe someone who might know something about the word gringo, uh, our buddy uh, Danny is going to be down there. So that should be kind of interesting, Danny Segura. Um, maybe he has a different perspective on the word. I don't know. He's a great guy. So our team will be down there. Plenty of coverage for them. Check them out. By the way, Luke Thomas show starts at about an hour and a half on Sirius XM 93. I got Matt Brown on the show at 4.30. And then Sports Illustrated's Andrew Sharp to talk about the Warriors doing amazing things that they're doing. Okay. All right. We have to go. Thank you so much for watching. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'll have this thing on podcast as soon as possible. You guys are the best. I couldn't do it without you. Follow me on Snapchat at Thomas or just thelukethomas79. Until next time, stay frosty and stay dice to the socks.